reading from today is Exodus 16, 1 through 30. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we had sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to, to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. 
And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kristen, for that reading. I know what you're thinking. Long scripture reading, short sermon, right? Ah. <laughs> Before we ask for God's uh, insight and wisdom to the passage, let me just give a couple more words of introduction about our family and our journey. Uh, the name Blumenstein, you might be wondering, what in the world? Not Scotch-Irish, definitely. Uh, I've shared with students before that it's a combination of two German words, the German word Blume, which means flower, no surprise there, Stein, which can be a, a rock, a stone, or a container, a beer mug. <laughs> so it could be translated flower pot, flower rock, flower mug. I shared this one time when I was speaking somewhere and somebody came up to me afterwards and greeted me as Mr. Crockpot. <laughs> and then I thought about that a minute. I, said, I thought, well, is that a veiled or not so veiled reference to the content of the message? Uh, crock, you know, you get the connection there. We moved from Baltimore to this area in the summer of 2021 after 10 wonderful years where I served as head of Cambridge School, a Christ-centered classical school in the Baltimore area, and where Sarah served as a nurse in hospitals in the area, specializing in lactation consulting. Currently, she is working part-time at the Atrium Hospital in Monroe as a lactation consultant, taking care of moms and newborns, and I'm teaching part-time at Arbor Brook Christian Academy, ninth grade Bible, eighth grade rhetoric, and seventh grade logic, if you can believe that. <laughs> Being back in North Carolina has been great for us. Sarah grew up in Allegheny County to the north, near the town of Sparta, not far from Boone, North Carolina. And I have roots in Iredell County, not far north of Charlotte, where my mother's parents lived on a small farm, and where I, in fact, learned some of my first lessons about Sabbath and what Sabbath is all about. Now in this season of life, it's been a great privilege to be near several of our children and their families. It's been a tremendous blessing to spend time with them and their spouses, and especially with the precious grandchildren in our lives. Sarah and I are especially grateful that we found this body of believers here in the Charlotte area during this season of transition in our lives. Indeed, the ministry of the word here the liturgical practices, the fellowship of God's people have enriched our hearts and souls and continue to do so beyond, beyond measure. And I'm thankful for the privilege, Josh, of participating in this rich series that I have benefited from tremendously. And following his messages, I must admit I'm a bit nervous today. So he's been doing a great job with this series. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer for insight into this scripture passage. Lord, we thank you for your word of truth. We ask now that you 
guide us and give us understanding, whatever understanding and insight we need for this time where we are in this fellowship and in the time of this day and the days to come, following around again to the next Lord's Day gathering of your people. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, for your presence, and for your patience with us, allowing us to hear your word and to understand your word and to see the connections between the unfolding biblical story and our own personal journeys and pilgrimages in this life. We thank you for all of your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we travel a bit from the story of the Exodus into the early stages of the wilderness wandering. God is preparing and shaping his people during this time of wandering. And there will be many years yet before they enter the promised land. We're going to learn something about Sabbath and rest, I hope. Even before in the sequence of the biblical story, Sabbath is codified into law as the fourth commandment in the tablets of the law. Let's look a bit at where we are in this journey of God's people and the unfolding of the biblical story. We're only one month in to what would become 40 years of wilderness before their eventual uh, and anticipated entry into the promised land. One month in. Scripture doesn't tell us that there are a few grumblers, but the whole congregation grumbles and complains. Josh and Lem, can you imagine such a scenario? (laughs) The entire congregation complaining. Not just a small handful of naysayers, but the whole group. This is just, just incredible. We can imagine a bit about how this started. Uh, maybe there were a few sneezers in the crowd. Do you know that word, sneezers? I was introduced to that expression by an African-American pastor who was sharing about his own church ministry in Michigan and how if they wanted to spread word about something, they would go to the sneezers first. They were the ones that, you know, sneezing, it just spreads. It goes everywhere. (laughs) Travels the fastest if they want something to happen. We could maybe uh, speculate a bit about how this happened in the politics of the congregation. But you know what? Um, We find later in uh, the book of Numbers we get some insight into what's actually happening. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up one month in, (laughs) and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Wow, God is so patient with his people. Sarah and I have been in churches long enough to know a bit about the impact of grumbling and complaining. I suppose, if I'm honest, I've been one of those grumblers from time to time. 
We've seen pockets of this in our church experience. We've seen situations where you could see uh, leadership nightmares developing in distress and discontent in the church. I experienced a taste of this during the pandemic while I was serving at Cambridge School in Baltimore. Tuition paying parents, there were clusters of them, became very disgruntled and very discontent over their children being required to wear masks. Over our undivided compliance with local and state authorities for the greater good and the health of the population. Now, if you want to take a deep dive into grumbling and the cycles of these struggles and the formation of the children of Israel, go to Psalm 78 sometime. You see cycle after cycle of God's people turning away from God, some grumbling, discontent, turning away, repenting, coming back. The constant is that God is always faithfully willing to receive this people back into his, into his fellowship. Let's take a little more of a dive into this particular episode of grumbling and, and discover what we might learn. There's an old story here, I think, that takes us back to the Garden of Eden. Satan's temptation strategy with Adam and Eve, in some ways, was to plant the seeds of discontent. There's something you're missing, Adam and Eve, something that's being withheld from you. There's something more. We know where those seeds of discontent went. They disobeyed. They succumbed to the seeds of discontent. It grew, and it led to a breach of trust between God and Adam and Eve. There were all sorts of consequences that follow related to the cycles of life, work, marriage. And then Genesis chapter 3, where we read of the, the curse of the fall, the curse associated with Adam and Eve, allowing the seeds of discontent to grow in their hearts. We see something that chapter 3 of Genesis has in common with chapter 16 in this business of discontentment dissatisfaction. Now what they don't have in common is the role played by something we might call nostalgia in Exodus 16. It's that rabble group with strong cravings as recorded for us in Numbers 11. They sow the seeds of discontent that spread like wildfire throughout the entire congregation. They use a strategy that can be very dangerous and very misleading for us as human beings. One of our children gave Sarah a fascinating gift this past Christmas, Brene Brown's magnum opus, Atlas of the Heart. Anybody familiar with that piece of work or with Brene Brown's work? Pretty fascinating, interesting stuff. She provides interesting insights into nostalgia and does an etymological study of the history of the word which is fascinating in itself. Let me just read here from her, from her work. In the late 1600s, and she's reading uh, from an essay written by uh, Adrian Maté, a Vancouver-based journalist and editor. 
And this essay um, she quotes from, in the late 1600s, Swiss medical student Johannes Hofer noticed a pattern in the patients who were living far from home. Those who were obsessed with returning to their estranged locations became physically, sometimes fatally, ill. To reflect this phenomenon, he coined the medical term nostalgia in 1688, which he created by combining the Greek words, the Greek words nostos, which can mean return or homecoming, and aga, which means pain. The disease's reported symptoms included loss of appetite, fainting, heightened suicide risk, and according to Swiss doctor Albert von Haller, hallucinations of the people and places you miss. It ran so rampant among Swiss mercenaries fighting far-flung wars, wars that they even outlawed the playing of an old Swiss milking song that seemed to send soldiers into a contagiously nostalgic frenzy punishable by death to sing this song that could cause this terrible dysfunction and not a, not a very good or pleasant situation. Now, there are young people present here, high school, college age, maybe a bit older. Have you ever found, found yourself tired of mom or dad's nostalgic musings about the good old days? Let's be honest the good old days, sometimes strategically intended to run away from or to complain about the overwhelming changes that might be coming to us in this world of digital media and all sorts of other stuff. I've been there with my own children. During those years, my, during those years growing up with my parents, I had my doubts at times as to whether mom or dad's picture of something called the good old days were true to reality instead of being some embellished version of history that might be clouded by the passage of time and even more so by resistance to present reality with which they were becoming increasingly uncomfortable. Bob Dylan wrote a famous song about this back in the 1960s. This tension during the tumultuous 1960s, civil rights, Vietnam War, one of the most tumultuous periods uh, in, in our history over the past hundred years. The times, they are a-changin', is the name of that song. And that song encapsulates a, a generational clash with all sorts of resistance and lack of understanding and misunderstanding between generations. Looking back, I sometimes wonder if my parents, when they got into the good old days uh, frame of mind, were just scared, perhaps, and afraid of what was going on in that time, a way to run from the present and the harsh realities, the challenging realities of the present. The particular version of what we could label nostalgia in Exodus 16, and, and by the way, nostalgia is not always a bad thing, what I read from the uh, Swiss physician, uh, uh, you know, again, this is obviously unhealthy, dysfunctional. It's not all bad. Uh, it all depends on where we go with it and what's, what's driving us. But the particular version of what we could label nostalgia in Exodus 16, and then we get more details in Numbers 11, 
is basically a type of a nostalgia that's addressed in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a type of nostalgia that does ask the question, why were the previous days better than these? Ecclesiastes warns us, do not say, how has it happened that former times were better than these? For it is not wise of you even to ask this question. There's something unwise in even asking the question. We're perhaps looking at a form of nostalgia in the grumbling of the ancient Israelites that longs for a past that never really was. How quickly we forget the oppressive circumstances of past times and the painful circumstances of past times. A kind of mythological fantasizing has already set in. But even more problematic, using nostalgia to avoid dealing fully with the present, with being fully present where we are, when we are in God's plan for us as his pilgrims. So I believe this to be what's going on in Exodus 16, sowing the seeds of discontent, driven by cravings that would distract from living fully in the present wilderness venture upon which the congregation of God's people has embarked. From Moses and Aaron's perspective, this is going to be a long, long journey, only one month in This is the first occurrence of Sabbath since the second chapter of Genesis in Scripture. And so there's several phases in which God responds to this murmuring directly himself and through his leaders, Moses and Aaron. Phase one, people are invited to come near before the Lord. He has heard your grumbling And they actually look and see a physical representation of God in the cloud. Cloud and fire being ways of describing God's presence, epiphanies, God showing up with his people. And it ain't in the direction of Egypt. It's in the wilderness. It's in a completely different direction. So they are seeing something of the glory of the Lord, a very physical experience of what direction they're to be headed. They're not to be looking back, but following this cloud, following God, living in the present moment of what God has for them. This away and not that away, to use sort of a a colloquial expression that I grew up hearing. Second phase involves the daily gathering of God's provision for them. The man who, man who, Hebrew for what's it? <laughs> There's a play on words. The actual name of mana has something to do, scholars believe, with the question, what's it in Hebrew? They're given very specific instructions as to the amount of what's it they're to gather for their tent and their different clusters, their families. They're to eat all of it on a daily basis and not store any in the cabinet, so to speak, Uh, but not content with God's instructions. Some of them 
Well, let's put a little bit aside. You know, we, we, we might not have more the next day, only to wake up in the morning to see this putrid, stinky manna uh, crawling maggots through it. There's a second phase and a kind of test. Will my people trust me? And uh, the instructions couldn't be more specific. You eat it, don't save any of it. The next day there will be more provision. And then in the third phase of this story of God responding to the grumbling and complaining of his people, there's the sixth day of gathering. Twice as much would be gathered on the sixth day so that on the seventh day they could truly enjoy a day of solemn rest, a holy Shabbat, a day of not gathering manna in the scorching sun on the Sabbath, a true day of rest. But some were discontent. Well, what they do? They went out on the seventh day to gather, blind to the fact that God is giving them a gift. This is not a restrictive, hard hammer law. It's a gift. It's a break from the scorching heat. Josh pointed out to me that it's kind of a foreshadowing. If you go back to Genesis 3.19, the curse, Adam is told, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. So here's this gracious gift in the desert wilderness, twice the amount on the sixth day, so they could rest truly on that day and not have to go out under the scorching heat in the wilderness. It's amazing. It's an invitation. Ultimately, this Sabbath calling is an invitation for them to be fully present to God and with one another in what is going to be a long journey. It's an invitation to enjoy a taste of the fullness of the seven days, as Josh has reminded us in his unfolding of this story of the Sabbath in the biblical narrative. It's a gift in short. Finally, there's this container, you know, they, they have to keep a jar of it. And I often wondered, how did that not somehow get filled with worms and maggots along the way and stinky or whatever? Uh, but be that as it may, they are to keep a jar as a remembrance of God's provision, God's gracious provision for his people on that, in that Sabbath cycle, twice the amount on the sixth day, enabling them truly to slow down, to rest, to enjoy God's peace, God's grace. Charles Spurgeon, famous and colorful Baptist preacher in England, once said, you know, the Bible sheds a lot of light on the commentaries. And one of my struggles with this passage is if you jump to John chapter 6, it almost tells everything. Uh, and of course, we've had some uh, references in our liturgy today already to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. So during the Protestant Reformation, there was a strong emphasis upon allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, assuming a wholeness and coherence 
of the Bible from Genesis, the book of Genesis, to the book of Revelation. Not just a haphazard collection of stories, but a collection of stories and narratives that fall under the arc of a single story that begins with the wholeness of creation, Adam and Eve thriving in the Garden of Eden, but that tragically records their own succumbing to a temptation that plays upon sowing seeds of discontent and ultimately translates into distrust and hence a breach of trust between them and God, their creator, which sets in motion a sequence of endeavors by God to restore that breach of trust in the form of covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with the nation of Israel, God's people, ultimately to enter the promised land and to receive the covenant embodied in God's law, the tablets of the law. Covenants initiated by God, deeply rooted in his steadfast love for wandering human beings who bear his image. Covenants that find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, the word become flesh, who invites his disciples during the Last Supper to drink of the cup referred to as the new covenant in his blood, Leading up to the last chapter in the gospel, the last supper in the Gospel of John, we experience some fascinating connections with the overarching, the, the arc of a single story, A-R-C, not A-R-K, the arc of a single story that ever moves toward redemption, restoration, and wholeness. I'll read a few verses from John 6. Then they said to Jesus, what must, we be do, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, and he is, interestingly enough, uh, just fed 5,000 plus people with bread from heaven, so to speak. Jesus answered, answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then there was grumbling. <laughs> Interesting. I am the bread of life, Jesus declares. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks of my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And then he speaks of feeding on this bread living forever, unlike the manner, the manna, many generations 
previous. And then after this teaching, many disciples turned back, no longer wanted to work with Jesus. This is weird stuff. We, we, we can't stay with this. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you indeed are the Holy One of God. This table behind here that we celebrate every Sunday grounds us in the story of God's welcoming and redeeming love. And it commissions us to walk ever leaning toward this welcoming and redeeming love in between our times at this table week after week. The bread and the cup are not just weekly reminders but an invitation to shape our lives as God was graciously shaping a people in the wilderness who entered the promised land, going generations later, God seeks to shape our lives around what he is about in the ultimate restoration of the fullness of the, creative, the created order. We are forever attached to the bread and the blood of the new covenant that opens the doors of Sabbath rest as a way of life a posture of trust in God's provision, a posture of contentment, a Eucharistic posture, Eucharistero, Greek for just giving thanks, ever grateful for God's grace and ever stewarding his grace in all of its many shapes and forms in the now of our lives, fully attentive to God in the present, fully present before God and to others in our practice of Sabbath, Sabbath practices as Josh continues to unfold this and gives us practical ways to live Sabbath, we find that it's not about retreating from life. Instead, Sabbath is about slowing down and becoming still enough to notice God's presence, to be fully engaged in present life and present reality. This is why Jesus, in the prayer we're going to pray, instructs us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, trusting God on a day-in, day-out basis. This points ahead. The journey is not over. Jesus himself spoke of not drinking of the bread, uh, sorry, the cup or eating the bread until the ultimate arrival of God's kingdom. So what I would like to do as I close is just to be nostalgic for a moment, if I might, and go back to that farm in Iredell County where I spent many hours working with my grandfather. I have a vivid memory of Granddaddy Bradburn on Sundays sitting and pondering the fruit of his labor throughout the week up to Sunday. Under the watchful eye of my much-beloved Granny Bradburn, making sure he was not engaging in what could be called work. He could end up in big trouble with God, being the strict Sunday Sabbatarian Methodist that she was. But there was a watermelon patch, and my grandfather had this habit as we worked on the, you know, planted the seeds, and the, the patch grew, the vines grew. He would place a stick at the tip, the end of a vine, and took great pleasure in getting up the next day and looking how far that vine had passed beyond the stick. While we slept, 
while we were not working, okay? And he would just sit and just ponder on Sunday the work. It could be the fields, it could be the watermelon patch, or whatever. As for me, those Sundays were a welcome respite from six days of really hard, hard work on the farm, everything from throwing, from throwing bales of hay or straw up onto the trailer under scorching summer heat or shoveling manure in the stables while breathing stagnant, smelly air that I'm sure was not so good for my health. Lord, dear Lord, bring the posture of Sabbath rest and stillness fully into our lives. Make us fully attentive to you in the present and to one another and to ourselves. Deliver us from all forms of unhealthy nostalgia that might blind us to present reality and rob us of the wonder and beauty of your grace in the present. As we ever anticipate with hope an even better day than these, the ultimate reign of your shalom, the complete restoration of trust between you, O Lord, and your people. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.